Please have a seat. Good to see you. There's an image on the screen which uh, is sort of a familiar type of image to us. Uh, it's sort of the type of one we might see on a Christmas card quite often. And uh, it's, I suppose, to convey something of the wonder of a newly married couple who are, who are staring in wonder into the, the manger in a stable in Bethlehem and this new creation that lies before them. But also for us, we know that it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's also the fact that here is a baby who is fully God and fully human. It's interesting that we don't just have a picture in our Christmas cards of, of a baby in a manger. We, we nearly always have Mary and Joseph standing there in the Christmas card scene. And perhaps one of the reasons why that type of image resonates with us so powerfully is because it looks so modern. It looks so nuclear. There's a family, little family of three. And uh, for us, that might not look unusual, but in terms of Jewish tradition, it's a very unusual picture because we're, where's the wider family? Where, where's the local community? And we, we know the answer to that is the fact that um, God allowed a census to take place of the entire Roman world, and so Joseph and his wife, the heavily pregnant Mary, went on a journey to, G- to David's hometown in Bethlehem, and so they ended up far removed from their family and from the local community. And I think there's a very good reason for that. It's because the baby didn't belong to Joseph. Joseph knew that, Mary knew that, we know that, but the family surrounding Mary and Joseph and the local community would have had all sorts of questions and eyebrows raised whenever the bump started to appear on Mary. We, we rightly and we tend to think of Mary as uh, the beloved mother of Jesus Christ, the blessed virgin who is the mother of Jesus. And also, as we heard two weeks ago, that, that Mary is an example for us of a servant-hearted follower of Jesus Christ. But for those who were surrounding Mary and Joseph, the initial thought or shock would have been that, that Mary and Joseph hadn't been able to control themselves, that they had broke with all tradition and decency and etiquette and Mary was showing that she had a child within her. You see, in Jewish tradition and culture, there are two events in a Jewish marriage. The first is betrothal. And at the point of betrothal, the husband and wife, the man and the woman, are seen as being married. And so they, they are married in all ways, bar one. They don't live together, and they haven't yet consummated their marriage. And so that's why in that reading from Matthew chapter 1, it it might appear from our eyes slightly confusing at first because it says that, that Mary and Joseph were pledged to be married. And then in a verse or two ahead of it, it said, Joseph, Mary's husband. 
And we might think, well, what is it? Were they betrothed or were they married? And the answer is they were betrothed to be married in Jewish culture. And so, from, from the point of view of, of, of the world around Mary and Joseph, they were married, but they weren't going to consummate their marriage and live together until after the second event in their marriage, the wedding itself. And this is really important for us in terms of trying to understand what Scripture has to say about marriage and what our relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. So the big question that would have been over Mary and Joseph's head would have been this question of have they not been able to control themselves? And that would have been something that would have brought shame on their family and their wider family and, in fact, the local community. But there was another question that would have hung above Mary's head, not just during her betrothal, but actually during her entire married life. And the question would have been adulterous, question mark. And that was a charge that by law was due to have death by stoning. And the amazing thing about the marriage between Mary and Joseph, and in any marriage, trust is vitally important. There has to be trust. But in Mary and Joseph's case, there was an aspect of the trust between them, which, which in a way reflects the very Christian faith that we have. I, I remember years ago, this is about 30 years ago, at an end-of-year or end-of-term variety show when I was at university over in England. And uh, the variety show had all sorts of different sketches and songs. And, and one of the sketches was based on that show, Whose Line Is It Anyway?, that improvisational comedy show. Where, so these, these students stood along the front in front of hundreds of us gathered together. And the idea was they would be handed random items and they had to be funny with them. And the only thing I really remember about that sketch was there was a young guy called Alec, and he was handed one of those big, round, industrial floor polishers, that, you know, the ones that go in the bottom of the big industrial cleaners. Hopefully it wasn't used, but you know, uh, he was handed one of these big material discs. And of course, we were all wondering, what's, what's Alec going to do? And as quick, quick as a flash, he put it behind his head, just in the way you would see on a stained glass window being behind Jesus, Mary, or Joseph. And he screwed up his face, and he said, whose child is it, Mary? That was the question that hung over the entirety of Mary and Joseph's married life. And the level of trust at the heart of Mary and Joseph's life was, was based on this simple phrase. This is God's son. So what was the trust at the heart of Mary and Joseph's married life is the very heart of the Christian faith. Now, whenever the question is posed, whose child is it, Mary? The answer that all of us declare is, this is God's Son. And this is really important for us because the whole Bible 
uses the, the analogy of marriage as, as probably the most central analogy of our relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are all sorts of analogies. There's shepherd, sheep, master, servant, parent, child. But perhaps the most comprehensive analogy trying to describe our relationship with God is the analogy of marriage between a husband and wife. And so at the last uh, book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that wonderful passage that we often read at funerals, Revelation 21, includes the line, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And so at our baptism, or at our confirmation where we, if we've been baptized as an infant, and we publicly declare our faith, that is our moment as followers of Jesus Christ where we say, I do. The understanding in the Bible of our relationship with God, the primary analogy the Bible gives us, the the crescendo to which it builds, the, the final marriage celebration, the big banquet in heaven, Revelation 21 and 22 finishes with this glorious picture of us as the church of God coming down out of heaven prepared for a wedding. And we're the bride, and Jesus Christ is the groom. And when we're baptized, or when we are confirmed, and we publicly declare our faith, what we're doing is we're saying to Jesus Christ, I do. You have proposed to us by your life, your death, your resurrection, and we're saying, I do. And that's why it's vitally important that we go through the waters of baptism and we declare our faith publicly in confirmation because that is the moment where we're saying publicly to Jesus Christ, I do. And as the Bible says, we're only saved if we believe with our hearts and declare with our lips. We are only saved if we pass through the waters of baptism and are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible is crystal clear. The amazing thing about the baby in the manger is that this is the marriage between God and His people. That's why Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's why Jesus speaks to us, His followers, in the language of marriage. And so when in that one, those wonderful words, whenever Jesus is asked by the religious leaders, about marriage, he gives them an answer which, yes, marries, answers the question that they have, but also speaks of a much deeper reality, the marriage between him and his people, the marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. It's the way the New Testament writers all understand the relationship between God and his people. It's how they all understand the nature of marriage, and that's because It's how Jesus understood the nature of marriage, and in fact, the whole nature of the Bible, and in fact, the whole nature of what He, as the focus of the Bible, was all about. So there's a moment, a couple of moments in Matthew's Gospel. We read part of the first chapter today of Matthew's Gospel, but there are two moments that I just want to look at briefly Uh, One is when the Sadducees come to Jesus, and one is when the Pharisees come to Jesus, and Matthew in his Gospel records both. One 
comes in Matthew chapter 22, whenever the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection, came to question Jesus. And they have this theological puzzle which they tend to rule out probably every time they talk to the Pharisees who did believe in resurrection. They tend to rule out some sort of theological conundrums. And so they tell this story, most likely a fictitious story, about a woman who marries seven brothers in turn after each one of them dies. I certainly hope it's fictitious, otherwise if I was one of those brothers, I would check my soup or get someone else to taste my soup every time. And so the Sadducees, who remember don't believe in resurrection, pose this question. Now then, they ask Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since they all were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. A few chapters earlier, some Pharisees came to Jesus, and they too wanted to question Him, and they wanted to question Him about marriage. And their question is about the law. Remember, the Pharisees do believe in resurrection. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read? Jesus replied, at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is a really important passage because it tells us how Jesus understands Scripture. And it tells us how Jesus understands the entirety of Scripture pointing to Himself. It also tells us the types, two types of intimate relationship that God blesses. One, between a man and a woman in marriage. And secondly, between a human being and Jesus Christ. The first one Jesus mentions in this passage is all about marriage because he's answering a question about divorce. And he takes his questioners back to the Garden of Eden. And Jesus did this again and again whenever the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law came to him and asked him about the Mosaic law, or asked him about the traditions. 
inevitably, Jesus took them back beyond the prophets, beyond the scribes, beyond the law, to the very beginning. Why? Because Jesus understood that his whole life and ministry was about making everything new. And so again and again, he brings them all back to the Garden of Eden. Because Jesus Christ has come to make all things new. And so he takes them back to a time before divorce was ever a word, ever even a concept. He takes them back to the Garden of Eden. And he says to them, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He's quoting Genesis, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. The wonder of the baby in the manger is that it's the marriage between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. And so the picture on our Christmas cards of Jesus Christ, a baby in a manger, is the announcement of a betrothal between God and His people. And you and I today, as followers of Jesus Christ, are living as those who are betrothed to Jesus Christ. We have, we have as we've said, I do at our baptism, we have become betrothed to Jesus Christ, and we are waiting for the consummation. The first event within our marriage has taken place, and Jesus Christ has said to us, I will come back for you. I will take you to the place where I am going. I have built a room for us on the side of my Father's house. You know the way to the place where I am going, because I am the way, and we're going to that place of consummation, the place of a new heaven and a new earth, where there's no tears and no death, because the old order of things will be swept away. Because when I come back, Jesus says, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so with our baptism or confirmation, we declare our faith. We pass the waters of baptism. We are filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And so John, in John 1, 4, 15, says, If anyone acknowledges Jesus Christ as the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. In Jesus Christ, heaven and earth have come together. And at the end of time, when Jesus comes again, heaven and earth will completely come together. And we, as the bride of Christ, will be brought blameless and holy and pure and without wrinkle and blemish. And so whenever Paul is writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, he makes it clear that his understanding, because it was Jesus' understanding and John's understanding and Peter's understanding of what the words of Jesus were all about in his life, Paul refers to the waters of baptism. And he describes, he describes marriage as a, a temporary prophetic sign of the relationship between God and His people, between Christ and His bride. And so Paul says, husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water, that's baptism, through the Word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church, Paul says. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So what does this mean for you and I today, 2018, as we approach Christmas? Well, firstly, if you're married, love your spouse the way God loves His people. Totally, faithfully, freely, and fruitfully. Because such marriage between a man and a woman is a prophetic sign of Christ's relationship with His church. If you are married, then your marriage is to be to the world an example of the depth of God's love for His people. So the move to redefine marriage, whether a move to say that marriage doesn't have to be between a man and a woman, or whether a move to say that marriage can involve three or more people, aren't just moves to redefine what alone is true marriage. It's an attempt to redefine the whole biblical story. It's an attempt to overturn the picture of the entire Bible, the fact that Jesus Christ is betrothed to be married to His church, His people. It's also important for us to remember that marriages are a temporary assignment. The vows include the words to love and to cherish till death us do part. There is only one marriage in heaven, and it's the marriage between Christ and His bride. If you are single and intend to remain single, then yours is a special calling. That's why Jesus said, if you can accept this call to lifelong celibacy, then accept it. There are those, Jesus said, who live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. It's a high calling and one which, like marriage, should only be embraced with the help of the Lord, and should only be embraced if we sense that God is calling us into it, because it is a particular call to follow in a particular way in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, and to commit ourselves to lifelong celibacy, to live a life of abstinence. We've spent the last uh, month or so thinking a bit about the spiritual exercises and about fasting. 
Well, Jesus fasted in a way that many of us choose not to fast in. And for the world today, for us, I, I think it's a particularly powerful witness to Jesus Christ. Because in today's world, there's this erroneous understanding that sexual fulfillment, as it's called, is a basic human need. And Jesus Christ, who is the only person ever to live a fully human life, has shown us that that's rubbish, that it is possible to live a complete life and not have sexual fulfillment. One of the most influential people in my life is a Church of Ireland minister who very early on in his life made a decision that he would remain single for the entirety of his life, that he would live a lifelong celibate life. And the reason why he did was because he felt as an ordained minister he could love the people of God more fully if he remained single throughout his entire life. Today, in the Christian community, we need desperately to rediscover the high calling of living a lifelong celibate life. If you sense that God is calling you to marry, then seek to do it with His guidance, His timing, and for His glory, remembering that such marriage is a sign of the great marriage that awaits all followers of Jesus Christ. And that as followers of Christ, the person whom we marry must also be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter and second letter, have at their very heart this whole sense, this whole theme. What has light got to do with darkness? What has the temple of God got to do with the rest of the world? The theme of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is this that we must only engage in marriage between what is of God and what is of God. And so whenever Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 7.39, he says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. The whole theme of those letters is the fact that we are married to Jesus Christ, and our temporal marriages are prophetic signs of the glory of God and the marriage between Christ and His church. And so our marriages must be believer to believer. They must give glory to God. And finally, and most importantly, to say, I do, to Christ's proposal. Because Jesus Christ wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so, He gets down on His knee and He proposes to every single human being. And the question for all of us is, is to answer that question whose child is it Mary? And when we say, I do, we are declaring 
this is God's Son. And so whether it's in the waters of baptism or in public declaring our baptism and confirmation, that's the moment whenever we say, I do. That's the moment we join the church of Jesus Christ, the church for which Jesus died, the church which will come down out of heaven prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And there will be singing in heaven. So what I'd love us to do as we finish is to stand and, and to pray. And as it were again to say to Jesus Christ, I do. That you came to live among us. That you married heaven in earth, that you will come again, and there will be a great coming together of the universe. And right at its heart will be the church of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ Himself. Shall we stand? So heavenly marriage awaits us, and Jesus Christ is the faithful one. And so if you desire today to say, as it were, I want to reaffirm my marriage vows to Jesus Christ. I want to reaffirm what happened at my baptism and confirmation. I want to say, Jesus Christ, I'm all yours. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you left heaven to come for me, to be born, live, and die to set me free, and to rise that I may be with you forever. I am all yours. By the waters of baptism and your Spirit living in me, thank you that I am part of your church. May we together be radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless, and all to your glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.